Well, good morning. Good to see you all here today. And uh, just wanted to do a couple of sort of intro things, really, before I get going on this. Um, I think one or two of you probably found the, uh, the whole business of um, uh, the um, imagery stuff quite, quite difficult to handle. And how do you study Revelation? What would be the, the great joy, I think, for many of us would be that if this sort of week with Revelation, you don't sort of, on Friday, breathe, or Sunday night even, breathe a kind of sigh or even say, well, thank goodness that's over, I can get back to nice stuff in the Gospels or something. Um, it's worth studying, it's worth grappling with, and uh, to grapple with the, um, the sort of imagery, most, I think, all of my imagery sheets have gone, um, but there's... Thank you, Ems, oh, that's great. Well, if you, want, if you want that stuff, we can get it copied or whatever. Um, and... The way I do it is quite simple. I, I just write down the images, you know, the horse, the, 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 the lampstand, whatever. Just write it down, and then starting maybe with a study Bible, if you've got one. If not, get someone to get you one for Christmas. Um, just, just write down what it says. It, this represents this. Uh, and then go to the next image in the, in the chapter and say, this image represents this. This image represents it. I am a very simple man, really. Um, I am not a, a highly complex thinker or anything like that. I, I have to have it simply laid out before me, uh, and then I can, I can get on top of it. If, if you don't get the satisfaction, as it were, with that, then there are, there are one or two commentaries that I've got here, which uh, uh, have been my sort of source for what I've, I've given you this week. This comes highly recommended by Johnny Lockwood. Indeed it does. Thank you so much, Johnny. I really appreciate that. You know, so um, it, that is a superb little book, um, and I didn't think I had it, but I did. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so that one's there. If you want to go up a bit, uh, you can go for um, various commentaries. You get some who produce um, wonderful charts on the book of Revelation with every image explained in every possible way, and you're not going to look at that because I'm going to hide it afterwards because it's a load of rubbish, basically. Um, um, uh, there are one or two other things which are worth looking at, little simple things like... Um, John Stott's very old book, which I've chucked away already, um, on the, um, what Christ thinks of the church. That's his little commentary on, on Revelation 2 and 3 that Joe's been helpfully taking us through. That sort of stuff's very good. Um, and one or two other com- uh, commentaries, you've got the Bible Speaks Today series, Michael Wilcock. That will help you a lot. Um, the one I think I found the most useful, if I'm absolutely honest with you, um, is this one by Paul Gardner on Revelation in that sort of lovely series that you can buy lots of commentaries in the Old Testament as well. So I found that one particularly helpful. Um, it's very simple, straightforward, it's very rational uh, and, and covers the book very well. Uh, it's really up to you guys. You can sort of bury this stuff, you know, forget it after, after you've been here. Or you can say, I, I wouldn't mind going a bit further. Let me warn you, you will, if you study lots of books, uh, find a whole um, variety of interpretations uh, people interpret things in different ways, and you may find that tricky. Uh, you may not. But uh, just be warned that you will get people who say, this is it, this is that, and, and whatever. One thing I, I love is music. Um, one of the bits of music, the types of music that I love, um, is the kind of music that was sung by the slaves in the deep south of America. Uh, and they would be in the cotton fields, picking their cotton Uh, under the yoke of the the guys who um, employed them. And they used to love to sing about the gospel train. The gospel train is coming, and I'm going to be there, man. Do you know why they sang that? 
is because as they worked in the cotton fields, the train would pass by. The train that as black people they could not get on. And as black people they couldn't afford. And as that train chugged past their cotton fields, they sang about the gospel train that one day will come. And I'll get on that train. And I know where that train's going. And I'm going to be there. And it's going to be brilliant. Revelation is driving us towards the moment when we will be gathered around the throne of heaven. Will you be on that train? Because that's the crucial thing about this morning, really. Uh, and, and he's helpfully pushed us towards that as he's introduced this morning's session. Uh, it, you, you either get a ticket and get on the train, or, you, or you're not on it. Uh, and Revelation is constantly, it, the more I read it, the more it pushes me to say, you're, you're either on it or you're not. That There's no room for lukewarmness. We learnt that earlier, didn't we? There's no room for saying, but, but I want to be there, and I want to be there as well. I, I, you can't do that. Are you on that gospel train? Are you moving in that direction? Is that where you're headed? I've got a home in glory land that outshines the sun, they used to sing. I'm going to be there. And as I say that, are you excited? Are you tingling? Are you anticipating? Are you saying, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through? And one day I'll be there. Now, Revelation is pushing us in that direction. And that's what you need to understand, that you, you're going to go home and nothing's going to be different. The questions are not going to change. The issues are going to be the same. And, and you need to get hold of this idea of, of that Revelation, I, I hope, is, is singing loud and clear at you. Choose you this day whom you will serve, Joshua said. As for me, I will serve the Lord. Are you there yet? I said I'd do a little bit on, on yesterday, just, just so that people who found yesterday morning pretty tricky to follow, um, we, we kind of just look at, look at it again very briefly. And I hope this helps you. Yesterday, we looked at chapter 6, where the seals are open. Follow it through. It's on the screen for you to look at. hope you can read it from there. And they reveal, those seals reveal a series of judgments God is going to make on the earth and its people. It's a kind of revelation of, of what the history is going to be from then on. And, and we saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're called often. Uh, and there it revealed the kind of rubbish that was going to happen in the world, that there were going to be conquests and there were going to be wars. You remember we had the crooked deals with the balance. Uh, and there was going to be that fourth horse of death. It was a picture of the world without Christ reflected in our world today. That really was what uh, chapter 6 was about. And, and you can see that, can't you? Uh, I can see that in my newspaper, on my TV screen. I can see that world where there are wars in Syria going on, as I told you about the Taliban who hacked people to death a couple of days ago. And as they're sending gunships now into Syrian cities to bomb innocent people and children are being killed. I can see that stuff going on. Next slide please, Gareth, if you would. Um, and in amongst it, there was in chapter 7 a sealed people. In amongst the chaos of this apparently Christless world, 
there was God's people, a perfect number in white robes. Joe mentioned that last night. The purity of God's people in the midst of all this dross. There were God's people, secure and safe, in white robes, singing, you heard it yesterday morning, salvation belongs to my God. He is the one who's going to deliver us from the rubbish of chapter 6 and put us in a sealed, secure place in chapter 7. And how is that going to be achieved? Chapter 12. A pregnant woman and a great dragon. Chapter 12, verse 3. Who tried to devour the child. The the earth is fallen. That swoosh of the dragon's tail. The fallen earth. And into that earth is born a son. A little baby is born. Isaiah, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. There is war in heaven and Satan is ejected to the earth and Satan pursues the woman, longing to stop God's plan of salvation. Can I get that baby? Because if I can get that baby, I can stop salvation happening. If only I can get hold of that baby and kill it off. And wonderfully and beautifully, God's people, the woman and the child, are secure and God's people are safe. Do you see it? The rubbish of the world... The beauty of God's people kept secure, yes, in amongst the world, still full of temptation, still full of pressure, still full of stress, still full of difficulty. And there in the midst of it is God's people sealed, secure. And we're going to look more at that this morning. And God's people are safe in the midst of it. And the dragon sits on the shore. What do I do next to get this lot sorted, he says in his evil way. And there we have the picture that we have. And we're going to move on this morning to look at chapter 13. So if we can move to the next bit, Gareth, that would be really good. Will you turn with me to chapter 13, please? We're going to go from 13 through 14 and and see how this looks together. And we have more beasts, I'm afraid. (laughs) There's a lot of them in Revelation, aren't there? We're going to have a couple more this morning, but they're good ones to look at. So the first one, the first beast, look at it with me, chapter 13, uh, verse 1b. When I say 1b, I mean the second half of chapter of, of that verse. I saw a beast, what is it? Coming out of the sea. Now, over history, uh, people have tried to sort of label this, pers- this beast with a name. It's Adolf Hitler or it's Saddam Hussein or something. Um, I think that's to misread Revelation. I think he's trying to say there have been lots of characters who fit, as it were, into this character. Now, if you look at it carefully, it says in verse 2, he resembles a leopard. Now, just to prove what I said to you earlier on about apocalyptic literature, often referring back, you Bible scholars, will you turn with me, without talking please, to to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 6. And you'll see a beautiful illustration of how this works. Um, It will take you a little time to find it, but just busy yourself finding chapter 7, verse 6 of Daniel, and you will see this exact language. We learn that on the head of this animal there was a blasphemous name. He persecutes the church. He has power. But if you've got there, after that, Daniel 7, verse 6, I looked, and there before me, was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, 
and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Now, I haven't got time to do this. If I was doing Daniel, I would take more time over this. But in that particular part of Daniel, there are four beasts mentioned. And most people interpret them as being the great empires of Persia, of Babylon, of Greece, and Rome. So they are the kind of empires that over the years have persecuted and, and tried to do down God's people. The, the ones that have done damage to God's people. The Babylonians obviously exiled. The Persians, well, they still persecuted, but they did let some of them go back. Uh, Greece, very much a culture that was opposed to Christianity. And finally, Rome, of course, that, that this time was persecuting. So what have we got here? We've got this beast. It had a fatal wound on it. Verse 3. Look at that with me, if you will. It says in that chapter very clearly, One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. Now, I don't know if you pick up in that a kind of contradiction. If the wound is fatal, surely it's dead. Now, what's John trying to say? Again, this is apocalyptic literature. And therefore things are said which don't quite square up with the way you'd normally think. If the wound is fatal, if you saw someone on the ground, you'd say he's fatally wounded, you'd say that's the end of him. Now what's he trying to say? I'll tell you what he's trying to say. I think my interpretation, as I've understood this, is quite simply, this wound was inflicted by the cross. It was done, it was a... The fact that Christ died on the cross did mortal damage to this evil beast. But... At this point, somehow, he's managed to survive it. It appeared that he'd been done to death. His works had been finished. But somehow, he's managed to get up again and still continue to wreak his havoc. Now, guys, will you please understand this? Will you please get this? That Satan would try and sift you like wheat... If you want it in modern parlance, he'd love to have you for breakfast. Just like he wanted to get the baby. Satan longs to take you away from Christ. I used to say to you when I was in forward, and I was doing the kind of thing that Joe's now doing, I often used to say to young people, I used to say, the one thing God will try to do when you come out of Sunday AM, do you still call it that? That's what I, that's what I started many, many moons ago. Uh, the one thing God will, Satan will try to do is as you go out of that door on the top of the stairs there and you go down through the concourse, they say, go, that's over. Don't need to worry about what Dave or one of the leaders had, had taught us this morning. Forget it, it's okay. Let's get back to living a normal life. And Satan would love to sift you in that way. Satan would love to say to you, My friends are all having sex, so I will. That's okay. Staying as purity and as a virgin before your marriage bed is not what we do in a cool world. Now, if that's happened to you, God is gracious, forgiving, and can restore. Of course he can. But God's ideal, and girls, if a bloke says to you, come on, if you really love me, you will, Satan's at work. Say no. Say no. 
literally, not on your life. Don't muck about. Satan would do anything, tempt you through the internet, tempt you through all sorts of stuff, tempt you to do things that you know to be wrong. Satan would love to have you for breakfast. And here in this place we have men worship the dragon, verse 4, because he'd given authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, who is like the beast. Who can make war against him? So we, we have this sense that he's strong, he's powerful, he, he wants to, to sort you out, he wants to drag you down, he wants to say, don't stay pure, don't do this, don't follow Christ, don't obey his commands. And, and I think I just about, I've done enough youth ministry over the years, I think, to understand how incredibly hard that is. When I was youth leader in Fullwood, one of the guys who was a member of the youth group wrote an essay um, in, a, in a kind of general studies, we used to call it in those days, at Tapton, actually, at Tapton. And she took this essay in, and uh, it, she showed it to me, actually, and, and I read it through for her, and I said, yeah, it's a good piece of work, great piece of work. That teacher actually got hold of that piece of work in front of a class of, I don't know, 20, 30 people, I guess, and absolutely ripped her to shreds publicly. I complained to the school because I considered it to be an unprofessional act, and I believe it was. But there are people who would love to rip to shreds because this beast is powerful. Who is like the beast? Who can make war against the beast? The beast was, verse 5, given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies, to exercise his authority for only a limited period. 42 months is exactly half of seven, seven years. Seven years is the perfect time. 42 year, months is anything but. And to slander his name and his dwelling place of those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints. And many will worship him. But look who it is who worships. All inhabitants, verse 8, of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life. Belonging to the Lamb. Heather and I went on a, a lovely trip earlier this year. We really enjoyed it. We went to New Zealand, Fiji, which was decadent in itself. It was wonderful. Um, not really decadent, but in the true sense of the word, okay. Um, and, and we also went to um, Singapore. And we stayed with, with friends in Singapore. And, and it's an interesting place. Um, the whole place, I don't know if you've been there, but the whole place seemed to revolve around the fact that all they want to do is make money. Uh, I'm sure there's some lovely people there were. We met them, Christians in Singapore, trying to oppose this idea. But while we were there, we just couldn't get away from the fact that everything seemed to revolve around the making of money, of materialism, of, of acquiring stuff. Here's another way that Satan will tempt you. I must have this, I must have that, I must have that, I must have... No, there's nothing wrong to, to, to um, have stuff which you, know, you treasure and is, is a real blessing to you, or iPods or your whatevers. You know, those things are fine. But if they become... The goal of your life, Satan's got you. You're worshipping something other than God. 
And so that is the first beast. Let's move on to the second beast. And that comes, starts in verse 11. And out of the earth, again, we see the fatal wound, and we see certain things about him. He exercised all authority, verse 12, of the first beast on his behalf. In other words, he, he was there with the same kind of authority. And, and this one is generally reckoned to be, the first one is very much about the, the kind of way in which uh, God's people are opposed. This one generally is interpreted as being someone who says, in this age, let's just conform... To, to what's around us, the secular authorities, the, the people that we live amongst, they must be right. Now, in my particular place in Southampton, um, they pass certain laws, they pass certain acts, well, not acts, but sort of bylaws or whatever, uh, and they expect us to, to obey them. And, and those are the things which, which I have to say to myself, is that true of God's word or isn't it? And, and this second beast very much is about that. And look what it says in verse 14. He deceived many. He performed the signs again in 13. And he deceived many because he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast. He deceived the inhabitants of the earth. Now I'm going to be a bit controversial now. And this might stir you up. If it does, brilliant. Brilliant. There are people in our land today who are saying that a marriage between two gay people is the same as a marriage between a man and a woman. If that is in the Bible, come and show me, please. If it's not in the Bible, and homosexuality is condemned... Just as any other sin is condemned, then let's go with what the secular authorities are teaching us. But if it isn't there and is clearly condemned, then as a Christian, I think I have a duty to oppose that. Now, that isn't popular. And there are lots of other places that I could go to where men, the great Christians in the... I talked about slaves earlier on, but the, the great sect uh, who put it together on slavery, Wilberforce and co., who stood and said, this is wrong. That one man or woman should be subservient as a slave to another person is wrong. <coughs> Now, this beast is telling you and is generally interpreted as being something that says the secular authority is always right. Follow it. But, my friends, sometimes we have to stand against. And that's what this beast is telling us. It was sustained by the first beast. And it had a mark on it. He marked everybody. Look at me. Look at, not me, but this verse, verse 16. He also forced anyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. Now, I'm sure you've heard of the mark of the beast. There are some bus companies in our world, in this country, who will not put 666 on a registration number. 
there are people who run a mile from putting 666 on their car because they believe it is the mark of the beast. Now, what is the mark of the beast? It is simply, it's not literal. I haven't seen walking down the high street. I was in Chester yesterday. I didn't see loads of people with 666 on their forehead. I didn't see that. It's, it's apocalyptic, metaphorical language. But they are marked with the beast. They are marked with the, the claws of secularism of living in this world. That's what they're marked with. And they're not marked with God. And what does it say? To such people it says his number is 666. Why 666? Seven is perfect. Six is less than perfect. So 666 is less than perfect, less than perfect, less than perfect. In fact, as much less than perfect as you can stack in it. It is not God's way. And it is the mark of the beast. It is what happens to people who turn their back on God. What is the response to this? It's very clear on that great statement that's going to appear on the screen right now. There we go. Brilliant, Gareth. That was very good. This calls for wisdom, verse 18. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is a man's number. It's it's man's construct. It's not... It's not of God. This calls for wisdom. We have to reject it. That is the mark of the beast. Then, I looked. Um, I I hope you get it. I've just got really excited about reading this stuff. And and we're going to go on to the... uh, the wonderful thing, and talk a little bit more about this 144,000. I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, that center of Jerusalem, that center of the place where God's people dwelt. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Do you see the contrast? Immediately there. All those who follow their own desires, who follow the desires of the world, have got 666 written on their forehead, metaphorically. What have God's people got? They've got their father's name. Do you walk around with your father's name on your forehead? Well, probably not, because you'd look a bit silly if you did. But what this means is, when people look at you, do they see your heavenly father? Do you remember that verse that said something like that? That people see our deeds and they give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Do they see God in us? And I heard that and I saw that. So let's go on to the, we return to the redeemed. Let's flip on from there, Gareth, if you would. God's people, 144,000, completely complete. Now, who are these people? Well, they're God's saved people. And this raises, and I'm going to... Again, I'm dropping myself right in it here this morning, and I'm going to get bombed with questions, I'm sure, on this. But I'm going to go there anyway. This is God's complete people. It isn't literally 12,000 from every tribe, but it is the ones whom God has chosen. Technical term for it, if you want it, from the Bible, is the elect. Now, how come some people get chosen and others don't? And I guess that's a question that you may have asked in small groups, in discussion groups, in whatever groups. Why is it that 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 is true? Well, we know that they're chosen by God. Now, I've heard young people, in fact, I did this on the telly once. We had a televised uh, songs of praise thing. And I was filmed 
in the basement of the, um, the office, as it now is. Stood in a big hole in the ground. It was just being built at the time. And then they asked me to do something with, um, with, with sort of young people, and I did a kind of session. And, and I always remember somebody at the end saying, I don't quite understand why some people are chosen and some people are not. But I know that God is bigger now to me than he was when I started. Now, let me try and deal with this, if I can, in a very simple way and try and explain it to you if I, if I possibly can. I think it's so hard. It's a big question. A lot of people ask it. Quite simply this. We argue it so often from the bottom up. We make statements like, God, it's not fair. Why has that person been saved and why has that person not been saved? We're arguing that from my choice and my perspective. I'm saying it's not fair. I'm chosen. I'm going to go to heaven. Somebody maybe very close to me isn't. That's unfair, God. What are you going to do about it? Kind of approach. Can I suggest that you don't argue bottom up. You argue top down. And you say quite simply, you start with the character of God. You start with who God is. And I think this verse, this chapter, shows us the, uh, uh, the wonder of God. I heard from the sound of heaven, the mighty rushing of waters, the, sound, the loud peal of thunder. God's authority, God's power is all around there. This music that comes from heaven. And God is on the throne. And therefore, who gets chosen is God's business. Do you know, I think there's four answers to prayer. We often say, don't we, there's three answers to prayer. Yes, no, wait. I think there's a fourth one. Mind your business. There are some things which are the secret things of God. And for some reason he chooses not to reveal. Why? Because God has complete and utter knowledge of every situation that exists. You may be very, very frightfully clever, and you may be brilliant at chemistry, biology, geography, or whatever, but what you certainly don't have is complete knowledge about anything. And sometimes when God chooses, if you've been chosen, your response is not to say, it's not fair. Do you know what the correct response is? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And I will double my efforts. I will be someone who is so passionately committed to be involved in the winning of others for Christ because I long for them to be where I am. I pray for them. I help them. I'm kind to them. I do everything I can to bring the gospel into their lives. And I'm passionate about the idea that someone else will be saved. I long to see their redemption. And God in his great grace and mercy allows me to be part of something that grows his kingdom. Guys, you're part of that right here. You have that opportunity to be those who seek and help others understand the truth of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I hope you're committed to that. It's basically what we're here for. The church is not a station that keeps things going. It's a mission station. Your church is, my church is, every church should be. It's a place that reaches out into community. We have a carving about that big 
in the front entrance to our church in Winchester. It's a beautiful thing. And it was done by a guy who's training to be a stonemason. He's a very clever man. He's beautiful at what he's done. It's, it's a gorgeous piece of work. And we've kind of taken a few bricks out and shoved it in and made it look gorgeous. It's, it's fantastic. Five years ago, that guy was in prison for trafficking drugs. He came to a little hostel on the edge of Winchester, a sort of halfway house between prison and society. And in that house was one of our church members, a Christian. And she loved and cared for the people who lived in that house, trying to help them to adjust to society outside of prison. And he came along to that and he said, I want to know what makes you tick. And this guy, with all those convictions for drug offences galore, he had, I don't know how many offences he'd been convicted for. And he came along and he heard the gospel. And his life is now transformed. He's married, he has two children. And that happened something, what, five, six years ago when he first came along to us. And his life has been changed because he met the lamb on the throne. Now, if someone like him can get transformed in that way, there is no one outside it, and we are part of that. We're part of the process. And what do we find about these elect? What do they do? They sing a new song, verse 3. And uh, the only those who can sing it, you see, there's this division coming again. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. No one else could sing it. There, there wasn't the possibility because they didn't know the words and they didn't understand what it was about. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Verse 4. Do you see that line? They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now, when my children were little, they don't do it now because they're much older, um, you sometimes have this experience, didn't you? Of, um, oh, I did anyway. Perhaps my children were just so perfect. Um, but, but when you walked around a shop, you'd, you'd find this little tacker sort of following you. You know, Wherever you went, he kind of went because he wanted to be with his daddy. So wherever daddy went, this is just a soft, you have to make you want to sit. Yeah, okay. Um, but but it, one of them particularly would just follow you wherever you went. As you walked along, you'd see this little boy underneath. And you, perhaps he'd, you'd hold his hand. And wherever you went, he went. Do you always do that with Jesus? Do you always go where Jesus leads you? They always, it says, follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These are the redeemed people of the earth. And if I can just skip on a bit to the next... Have I got one more somewhere? That's great, Gareth. So what? Another angel, verse 6, appears. And the crucial thing is that this is made known. Here it is, you see. I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God and give him glory. This is what he asks us to do. That somehow we take this gospel, this truth, into the world in which we live. And secondly... The next one, please, if we could. Babylon is fallen. Now, I don't want to touch this too much today because I'm going to take, pick it up tomorrow. But quite simply, this is it. If John had written, and I want you to think about this, so when you come tomorrow, you'll be much more sort of ready for this. 
If John had written, Rome is going to crumble in 95 AD, he would have got strung up. Quite simply, he would have just been taken out of circulation. So he writes, Babylon is fallen. Now, Babylon was something that had fallen 400 years before when the Persians raided it and and took it apart uh, and the Babylonian civilization had finished. But for the Jewish, Jewish nation, Babylon was a symbol of everything that was evil and contrary. They'd taken God's people into exile 400, sorry, 600 years before that. And, and they'd been there for some years, and then bit by bit they drifted their way back. So when he said, Babylon, what he really meant was Rome. And in apocalyptic literature, you did that kind of thing. You wrote something that everybody knew what you were talking about. Everybody knew what John was on about. Just like in the, the, the beast that we saw earlier with the leopard, everybody knew that that referred back to Daniel. Here, when he says Babylon is fallen, and as we finish, just contextualize it. Think of your first century Christian. Think of your guy going to the gladiatorial arena. Think of your guy being put in prison. Babylon is fallen. As John looked to the future, he's saying, guys, that immensely strong, powerful nation that has the capability of putting you to death is now, as I see it, gone. And in 400 years, it was. The Romans left this country about that time. All the bits they've left behind, there is nothing left of Roman civilization anywhere in the planet except the bits that you go to which are ruins, like the Forum in Rome. Nothing left. Rome is gone. You see, guys, that's what's going to happen. Bit by bit, all the evil stuff is going to get demolished. Babylon the Great is fallen. We're going to come back to that in more detail tomorrow. But just finish with me. Another angel, still another angel. Verse 18, chapter 14. Still another angel had charge of the fire, came from the altar. And this this great harvest, there's going to be a pruning, a taking away of all that's rubbish. And it's going to be trodden down in a wine press. In a wine press, you got on top of it and you trod it down and out of it comes blood. And that's the end. What we're seeing here, guys, is the end of anything that's bad and evil. God is going to deal with it. He's going to finish it off. And therefore, to finish verse 12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. So guys, here's your manifesto for the rest of your life. Look at it. Be faithful. Obey God's commands. Remain faithful to Jesus. If we die, we die in the Lord. So that's okay. That's all right, because we'll be with him forever. And we will achieve, verse 14, rest. Are you on the gospel train? Do you know where you're heading? Chapter 14 has told you what it's going to be like.
choose you this day whom you will serve. Are you a part of God's people? Do you really know you are? Are you assured and convinced that you are? Today there could be great rejoicing in heaven because somebody says, somebody says in this room, I am fed up messing about with compromise. I'm fed up messing about with not knowing who I am and what I am. I want to follow Christ. I want to be a Christian. That's what Christian is. Someone who follows Christ. Are you? Shall we pray? Let's pray together. Father God, this is tricky stuff and I I guess some of us have understood some of it. Maybe some of us haven't understood any of it. But I really pray that by your spirit you will illuminate our minds and our hearts to see that there are all kinds of beasts in our world today that would drive us away from following Christ. But in the midst of our world there is the elect and one day in heaven there will be the completeness of God's chosen people gathered around the throne as we see again in chapter 15 gathering and worshipping and praising God because Babylon is fallen and we will be with Christ forever in the perfection of his heaven Lord help us to see we need to get on that train we need to be there and if we miss it The consequences are eternal darkness. Convince us of truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Oh, sorry.